Today on this episode of The Crossover, we will be discussing healing the brain with Harvard professor Dr. Philippe Fregni. Learn how this pioneer in neuromodulation is pushing the frontiers of brain injury rehabilitation and advancing the treatment of conditions such as stroke, Parkinson's disease, traumatic brain injury, and chronic pain. Much more on this episode of The Crossover. Good afternoon, everyone. We have the pleasure of speaking with my friend and colleague, as well as a pioneer in neuromodulation. Uh, Philippe Fregni is professor at Harvard and director of the Spalding Neuromodulation Center, where his NIH-funded lab investigates techniques to guide neuroplasticity in brain injury, stroke, Parkinson's disease, as well as chronic pain. Philippe holds an MD and PhD from the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and three master's degrees from Harvard. He has more than 580 peer-reviewed publications and has been leading the international training pro program principles and practice of clinical research since its inception in 2007. We'll get more into that during the course of the interview. Dr. Fregni has also been awarded the United States Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. Very excited to talk to him today about healing the brain. Amazing advances have been made in terms of how we deal with these conditions of the brain injuries. And I'm very excited to hear what he has to say about what the future holds. So, Philippe, very excited to have you on. And again, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ricardo, to, to having me. I'm, I'm excited as well with our conversation. Let's just get right into the details about what exactly is neuromodulation. People may not really understand exactly what that term means, but what is that? What does that encompass? Sure, that's a great question, and uh, and that's one thing. So usually, is one of the, my, my first slides when I when I give talks. So neuromodulation, it is. So there's two things. One, again, if you think of neuromodulation, it's a very broad term. It could be so anything. So we think of the modulation of the neural system, and then anything can modulate the neural system. So even now we are having this conversation. Your brain is being modulated when you do exercises. Your brain is being modulated when we when we study. So, but the field has used this term for modulation with electrical stimulation with uh, uh, different tools as well that can deliver. Uh, or can stimulate the the neural activity. So that's how we are using the term. But in a way, again, if you wanted to go with the term, so it is very broad. But again, field is using more for electrical stimulation, magnetic stimulation, tools that can deliver currents to the brain or to the neural system. How did you first get interested in this field? That's a that's a, that's also an, an interesting question. So. For me, actually, was uh, was it, it comes even before going to residency in neurology. So um, um, I was very interested. So can we do what can we do differently in in neurology, in neurosciences, in order to improve patients' uh, health and quality of life? Um, as 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 I was going going through my medical training, my during residency, for me, it was clear that everything we are, we are doing. So we're basically the model that we use and, and most of our, our tools that we use in the clinical practice, at least again, 20, 20 something years ago, it was based on pharmacological approaches only and a little bit on surgical uh, approaches when, when it was possible. Even it's interesting because on the surgical aspect, neuromodulation was being used and tested for a bit longer, but 
going back here, so while I was for me it was clear that the uh, the the pharmacological strategy had a had a limitation. So you you reach the the ceiling effect or what you could do for patients, and then also you brought a number of complications, and that for me started sort of uh, you know bothering me and, and getting me sort of um, impatient to 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 find something else. Uh, so, for instance, Parkinson's disease. Yes, we can. We, there, there is all these sort of uh, treatments with with um, uh, dopamine agonists, but they have a limitation on how much you can improve it, and also it comes with all the complications, as as we can see with with pharmacological treatment for Parkinson's disease. But then uh, it was interesting. So then, during my residency, I I, I came here to Beth Israel. It was supposed to be one or two two months actually for uh, an observership, and and that's when I run into there was a two thousand I run into the uh, laboratory of magnetic stimulation, and that gave me sort of what I was what I was looking for in terms of you know that's something that it is an alternative to pharmacological treatments, and also that goes along the lines that uh, that I was looking for. So can we use our brain sort of a response, our brain mechanism in order to overcome or compensate for for the consequence of brain injury or brain disease. And 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 that for me actually there, there was a click when 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 I was exposed to this laboratory of TMS here at Beth Israel. And then yeah, then I finished my residency and then uh, the the day after I finished my residency I was I was coming to Boston literally actually there I think there was a one or two weeks, I finished my residency, and I was in Boston. Then, uh, and that that has been sort of my journey here, trying to find different different tools and understanding, so that we can offer better better treatments. Now, I think you know people want to know because the brain is unlike other organs in the sense that neuronal regeneration and neuroplasticity is limited, as opposed to bones or skin. How do you overcome that limitation in regeneration that the brain presents? Sure. Yeah, that's another important important topic as well. So the way I see it, and, and, and that's when actually uh, when you don't get the, the expected results what patients wanted. And so one of the issues of neuromodulation is as you are using plasticity, as you are using sort of uh, the the mechanism, the uh, I, I like to call the healing mechanism. So in a way, it is our compensatory mechanism. So as you're using these natural process or physiological processes, it takes some time. It's not, you're not going to have the immediate effect that, for instance, taking a, a dopamine agonist will give to you. So it requires time to develop these new connections to strengthen the connections that you 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 created, and so that's the response. So it takes time and training and uh, and effort. So if you wanted to do, and that, that's what one thing that we start seeing. So the the initial protocols with TMS, for instance, it was uh, ten days, um, five days stop on the weekend and five days. So then we start seeing that then uh, 10 days is not enough and you need you need 15 days and you need 20 days. And now we can, we've even seen that it's better to have a maintenance uh, protocol. 
and that for me, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. And one thing that we're even exploring now, not only the number of sessions, but having longer sessions with portable devices. So the brain needs constant stimulation. And, and that's that's we is where we need to adjust to be able to offer something that will have a larger effect sizes because it's all about effect size. So it does it does have an effect, but we need to enhance these effects. And, and that's also one reason that we see better results with surgical neuromodulation where, where you put the implant because you have that stimulator for, for a continuous amount of time. Now, something we see in surgery is how age-dependent neuroplasticity is. You operate on a younger patient and their ability to recover from deficits produced by the tumor or by surgery itself is much greater than the ability to recover as they get older. How age-dependent is neuroplasticity in your experience? So we have run, and that's one thing that we looked into in most of our studies. So, you know, when we finish the study, we see a significant result. But the next question is, what are the characteristics that patients respond more? And we run regression models, these, these, these statistical models to try to find the factors that influence the response. And we've seen that age is an important factor. Uh, however, it is, it is and it's not at the same time. So let me explain. So it is significant, but the effect size is small. So meaning that, yes, you do have it when you compare the uh, sort of a younger to an, an older brain, you do have it a larger effect in the younger. But what we've been seeing is that the older brain needs a little bit different parameters. And same thing as well, needs a little bit more stimulation as well. So the younger brain may respond with less, with a smaller dosage of stimulation. And the older brain may respond with a larger dosage. But then in, in, in rehabilitation, in neurorehabilitation, and and that's one thing that sometimes we see this sort of old neurologist saying, no, look, your learning and your plasticity would be would be limited. And that's not what we see. It, it is different through compared to younger, but you still can induce a significant plasticity in the older brain as well. So that 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 we just need to learn more. And I think that's uh most of the studies we do it, that's that's the problem as well. So now now we are pushing to have more studies in older people, but that's that's one of the problem with the data. So our data is 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 mostly on on adults. This episode is brought to you by vitamin water. Vitamin water contains the optimal blend of electrolytes to fuel your day. So whether it's doing brain surgery or simply relaxing at the beach, vitamin water should be your source of hydration. Check out vitaminwater.com for more information and use promo code CROSSOVER for 20% off your first order. That's CROSSOVER for 20% off. Now you've mentioned already some examples, but give us some more information. What are some of the tools that you use to neuromodulate the brain and augment neuronal regeneration? Sure. Uh, there, there are different tools, um, even before going there. So one thing that I will even anticipate one, one important question is that, you know, if you ask, so which one is, is, is better or what is the best one? And that one, that response, we don't know yet, but then I think the the main, or, or the main sort of, uh, 
of of category. So let's put it sort of the category here. It is the electrical stimulation and the magnetic stimulation. So meaning you can induce electrical currents directly with the, with electrical currents. So or you can use magnetic stimulation, but the magnetic stimulation that's an important concept. The idea of using magnetic stimulation it is to induce electrical currents. So we use a a varying magnetic field that causes a uh, electrical current induces a secondary electrical current. So that's that's the idea of using magnetic stimulation. At the end of the day, you want to induce electrical currents, electrical activity in the nervous system. So with that division, so again, we one one main tool is the magnetic magnetic stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, that basically uses magnetic stimulation. The the advantage of magnetic stimulation is that it induces a large amount of current into the brain. So that is relatively painless. So and then it can pass the skull without uh, without any any difficulty. So the only problem with magnetic field is that in the case with a square of distance, meaning that you can't go too deep. So most of the effects are in the cortex. Gotcha. So that's good, that's yeah that's a good tool if if you wanted to induce larger electrical currents into the brain. So we can see as well. So for instance, you you place your 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 TMS on the motor cortex, and we see the uh, the the hand twitching. You see, a, meaning it's a large electrical current, and then um, and then you can use this in several areas. You can use the motor cortex in stroke, in Parkinson's disease. Uh, uh, a main one that was, you know, since the first studies, even in nineties, it was with depression. So using TMS on the prefrontal uh, DLPFC, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and showing good results. So, um, and then and it has been used. TMS has been used for a number of conditions: epilepsy, chronic pain, and so on. So again, and but being careful because induces a large current. There is a small risk of inducing seizures depending on on the frequency and intensity of stimulation. So that's uh, and and also you need a, a, the large device. It is not portable. There is one device that it they, they approve. I think they approve. They, it's FDA approved it uh, for portable. It uses a a large magnetic uh, uh, stimulator. And it just uses just the, there is one pulse for migraine, but that that even the the efficacy still be investigated. Uh, but most of them you need to go to a treatment center, receive it, you need to go to the hospital or whatever treatment center. And then you have the electrical stimulators. Big advantage is that they, they are easier to use, more portable, and also in a way safer because they induce a smaller amount of currents. And then, uh, and again, the one that we are we are excited, and the field has produced so much research, is with uh, it's called transcranial direct current stimulation. It uses a continuous, a continuous or or one direction current. So uh, when you do that, what happens? You have it if you put it in two electrodes here. You have this this different difference of potential between two electrodes. That means that you're going to have a ionic current 
and you have to have a polarization in the brain. This technique was called before, was called as a brain polarization. We changed the name when we started doing more research uh, in 2000, myself and also Mike Onich from Germany with Jutra's grand direct, direct simulation. But the papers before this, let's call new era of, of TDCS was called brain polarization. It caused a polarization. And again, it's, it's, it's safe. Um, it's easy to use, it's portable, and the idea it, it causes a we like we say it causes a difference on the uh, neuronal threshold, meaning that neurons can can fire uh, easily or not or less or, or or it's more difficult to fire. Therefore, it is good that when you combine with behavioral therapies. So that's that's. Those are the tools, and, and and then there are more tools, but um, one that is being now, and we are doing a number of investigations on that as well, uh, on uh, transcranial or transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation. So the vagal nerve seems to be a a large a large access to the especially to more subcortical areas to the brainstem and 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 the limbic system and so on. And even in cortical areas, so it seems that the vagal nerve has an important uh, modulation effect on cortical and brain structures. So, so, and it's easy to access through the ear. You can do the neck as well, but you can through the ear. And 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 the surgical field, as you know, so has been using vagal nerve stimulation invasively for many decades. It's FDA approved and so on. So. I would say those are the techniques. There's some variation, some again, some some using magnetic stimulation with with low magnetic fields, and then the data is not. It's a little bit uh, mixed at this point, but those are the uh, the the main categories. So either nerve nerve electrical stimulation uh, or brain electrical stimulation or brain magnetic stimulation. So that's a uh, very cool. It's uh, such yeah. a such exciting technology. Give us some specifics, right? Because it's kind of nebulous for the general population. But how do these tools? How are you using them to augment recovery after either traumatic brain injury? How are you advancing Parkinson's disease potentially? And what about chronic pain? These are all these are all conditions that really could benefit from this. Give us some examples. Sure. So for um, and and I think that's a we can even divide here. So one is when you have a brain lesion, let's say a stroke or or traumatic brain injury. Traumatic brain injury is a bit more complex because you know each injury is is different in terms of what what damages the stroke. True, that is also different, but it it has some sort of at least some vascular territory. But uh, thinking on on there is a lesion in the brain, so there's one area that's affected. I think the the whole idea of plasticity, and again, and that goes back to you know, the, the the Spanish neurologist Cajal, uh, is that all the areas of the brain they 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 changed in a way, and and you start developing new connections as well with with intact intact areas. So there is a lot of redundancy in the brain. So that's uh, that's one interesting one interesting aspect as well. So the circuits, as as we go 
as you go to the learning stages, of course, the circuits get more specialized, but you still maintain some of redundant circuits. You just need to reactivate them. And that's that's the whole idea. So, uh, and that's what we do it. We try, for instance, the, and, and one thing, there's two things that happens. So one, trying to get these circuits again, and two, trying to avoid what you call maladaptive plasticity. An example, let's say, again, you have a stroke and, and, and you have it, a weakness in the left side. So what's going to happen naturally, they're going to use more the right side. And then by compensation, your, 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 your healthy hemisphere, brain hemisphere, it's going to inhibit your affected hemisphere. So that, that's what we call maladaptive plasticity, meaning that you wanted to shut down even more the area that was was affected. And what we try to do it, we try to decrease activity in the good hemisphere to try to force whatever is intact in the lesion hemisphere to take over. So, and in a way, it's what is being used in physical therapy, the constraint movement induced therapy. They do it that, but they do it that by blocking the good hand and forcing the 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 affected hand. So, but we we do this centrally, and uh, so and that's and that's the idea. So again, uh, is is trying to uh, to enhance activity in the areas that is still you have intact areas that can be used and force those areas to develop new connections. Um, and we're still learning which areas should we go. And again, and and the idea also now is. You know, as, as it gets easier to do the reimaging subjects, as it gets easier to understand what's happening on an individual basis, then hopefully we understand more which areas should we turn on, let's put it this way, and which areas should we turn off when you have a lesion. So that is the um, the whole idea, but but always and, and associating of, of course with, with motor motor uh, therapy and so on. So but that's the idea for organ stroke and 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 traumatic brain injury, uh trying to enhance those areas that is still have some intact neural neuro neuro uh connection. So and then so that that's when you have a lesion. And when you don't have a lesion, for instance, chronic pain, which is quite interesting. In a way, chronic pain is always some sort of something happened with your sensory pain system. Sometimes it's not a big lesion, but even a small nerve lesion. For instance, in fibromyalgia, we think, now look, fibromyalgia is a more psychological uh, uh, issue and uh, starts with depression. But more and more, we, we see that in fibromyalgia, it is quite similar to neuropathic pain. And it does see in these patients, they have what you call small, small fiber neuropathy. So they do have some, some uh, changes as well in the uh, sort of uh, small fiber uh, uh, nerves. So, and, and, and so what I'm trying to say is that usually, even though there's no large lesion in chronic pain, there's always um, uh, something that is, is imbalancing the the whole functioning of the sensory pain system and when that happens for instance some nerves some 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 peripheral neural areas started to produce less less signaling to the brain 
what happens is that the brain reacts to that. So look, if it's if if we are not if we're not getting all the sensory afferents, all the sensory information from the periphery, what will do it? The response is you you make those systems more reactive. And that, that's that's when we start seeing hyperalgesia and so on. So the system starts to react. But the, the problem is that it doesn't react only for that small area that's lesion for the whole for the whole sensory system. So then, before what was was not painful become becomes painful. So that's that's again that that leads to central sensitization, peripheral sensitization. But again, it's always a dysregulation of your your sensory pain system and then what we try to do it that, that's the quite interesting part what we try to do it is we do we stimulate the sensory system instead of decreasing and and, and that goes exactly opposite for the opioids we do exactly the op- opposite opioids try to shut down everything that's why it, it, again you have the dependence and 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 you need to be taking more and more and uh and develop all the consequences, but we do the opposite. We don't. We cause it. We cause more activation on the pain system, on the sensory system. So then you can develop your inhibitory pathways, your normal endogenous inhibitory pathways. So that's again, and and that's why I, I I'm so excited with with neuromodulation because we try to use our brain compensation systems, and we have many. We're just not exploring that, and again, and, and the traditional pharmacological therapy of very very useful, but they go against that. They go against the uh, this natural compensatory mechanism. And and for instance, opioids is an example, analgesics an example as well. So because what happens is that you keep decreasing your sensory processing, and, and therefore you keep decreasing your endogenous inhibitory pathways and 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 patients keep getting worse chronically and for acute that's fine but for chronic use that's what's what caused all this and we see now with opioid uh, crisis and so on now something that i'm sure has played a role in your research is the field of uh, conectomics which is exploding how are you incorporating this new technology and information into your research? Yeah, that's that, that's uh, another very important point as well. So, um, I think that's uh, that's so much. So uh, we, I think that that's how, so we haven't done anything specifically on that. So we do it in a, a more sort of a, we do it in our studies. We look for connectivity in different ways. And I think that that field is helping us to identify the circuits. So I think that's that's what's helping us to as we understand more the circuits. And because that's that's a difficult thing when, when thinking on brain stimulation. So if you if you try to 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 change excitability in one neural circuit, this has a whole uh, consequence to the brain. So different areas get affected, and we still don't know. So the mapping is still not completely understood. So in a way, again, what I'm trying to say it hasn't translated fully to be able to understand even better 
the uh, uh, what we need to do it in terms of parameters of stimulation, so on. And uh, so again, we keep the most of the studies. We look for connectivity in, with different tools, but it's still sort of the also one thing that's important is the resolution of these tools. It is much lower than we would like to, and and the brain is extremely complex. You know, so if you if you think on the electrical circuit of of the heart, it's quite 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 simpler compared to 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 the brain. And uh, so again, I think it is still hasn't changed fundamentally, uh, uh, but but of course it does have a big influence as well on on how we think and how we're looking for developing other treatments yeah now two areas that i think have a lot of potential interaction with neuromodulation would be stem cells and then brain machine interface sure are you incorporating those in your lab at all or what's your opinion sure. on those two fields sure so this is stem, stem cells um we have not i think the uh the results um, so the stem cells, so the field has been, has had, uh, mixed results in terms of the stem cells and what can be done as well. So I, I follow some of the research in stroke, um, some good animal, some animal studies with good results, other with a little bit unclear results as well. So any humans, it hasn't been very clear as well. So so potentially, I could see if if we show lock stem cells, the uh, the you can enhance plasticity in the sort of uh, in this uh, uh, in the surrounding of the lesion area, for instance, in this gray area there that that you have it in, in the stroke, and that's what they are trying to show. Again, some animal studies showing good results and and these mixed results, but let's consider that themselves and you can truly get the cells located on the lesion areas and they start becoming active then you'll be you'll be a great great uh, uh, component to be associated with neuromodulation so then you can use neuromodulation you enhance this this activity in this area it can even help to make them stem cells to become it uh, uh, an, another circuit, but it's true again. I haven't seen too much to be able to um, to design a trial and say, "Look, let's test, let's test together." Maybe a few years from now, you you start getting a little bit more more robust data that we can. I think it's a potential. That's what I put it uh, there. And then, on terms of machine learning and and uh, and uh, uh, the brain-computer interface. Um, so the whole idea of this closed loops, uh, closed loop system that you you detect information in the brain and then try to to modulate, uh, change the parameters of stimulation. We've done some studies. We still need to learn more. So most of the studies we've done as well is all non-invasive. So we use ZG for the brain-machine interface. Uh, so use EG, this EG signal goes through the stimulation and then triggers the stimulation when you when you have it, let's say a decrease in activity. So then it triggers that. Uh, we we saw 
good results, but it's still unclear if that now with the knowledge we have it, it does produce a significant better result. But I still I still like like this this approach of combining both uh, 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 signaling, measure the signal in the brain, and take it to the stimulator, and then trying to to use that to modify activity. So I do think that's that's a potential new new area as well to be explored more um, uh, uh, as we learn more in terms of what. What does that mean? Uh, this, this, we still need again going back to what we discussed. We still need better, better resolution tools uh, or understanding better the signal. So the EG, you know, there, there's so much to do in EG as well to understand more uh, novel parameters of EG and and how to use that to guide the stimulation. But uh, but yes, but that, that that's an area that uh, hopefully there'll be a good development and also to have more portable devices. So, Now, let me ask you a little bit about your novel Harvard program on clinical research training. You've been such a pioneer in the field, and this this training program has so much potential. It's really already blossomed. But tell us a little bit about what that program entails. Sure. Yes, we are. I'm, I'm very excited with this process. It's a, a, another big passion as well. Besides of my research, I think there was a my two two main areas here at Harvard. Uh, so that comes a little bit about about you know my trajectory here as well at, at Harvard. So when I got here, uh, I got my training in at the University of Sao Paulo, and then I got here. So again, as most of clinicians, and 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 I can see the clinicians here from Harvard as well. So they we are not exposed to as as a clinician. So you get very little exposed to good training. In, in clinical research methodology, there is something here and there. Maybe also the uh, the the, uh, the students and residents are not that interested. And there's a mix of components there. But anyway, for me, when I finally took it, I, I came here and then I took it a program at, at Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, that was the first first masters, and made a big difference. And uh, uh, because it's not you know when you become a scientist. It's not only learning about everything on neurology or neuroscience, and but you need to learn the methodology so then you can design your trials and so on. And if you're a clinician also, and, and that's one thing that I, for me, and I pass to the students, if you're a clinician, as much as you learn about data and evidence-based, not only to read the abstract, but you can go deep on a paper that is important for your area. So that, that would change how a clinician can can perform that's that's at least for me it's 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 very clear so then but then going back there so i had this this training here at harvard and for me again and and i was going back and forth traveling to brazil other places in south america uh, research collaborations and so on and and my colleagues asking so can we how can we increase the collaboration and training and that's that's when I came back one of these trips. I came back here to, to Harvard and I and I discussed with colleagues. I was a junior faculty at that point, and I discussed with my colleagues. So can we do a program with initially was with colleagues in Brazil? And anyway, after all the hurdles and, and so on, we said let's do a program. Uh, initially it was was meant to be one week or a few days. And I said, look, we need to do something more longitudinal. And that's at that point. 
we of course there was video conference and it was much much more difficult now with zoom everything's so easy but that point was you know to get to get what we're having here you need very expensive devices to have the same quality you could do web connections you know we started in 2008 you could do web connections there was webex that was the main one at that point uh but it was terrible so to get a web connection you would have i speak you close your microphone and i stopped speaking it was you know those those systems that that's the only way not to have echo and the camera as well we have to speak turn off the camera even with two people anyway so and the 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 bandwidth but we manage we with this with this more sophisticated uh, equipment i remember i had to go to a basement in brigham and women's hospital uh to to be able to have a good equipment and then do the lecture with brazil but that's when we started started 2008 and the idea was can we deliver a high quality program almost over a year to you know to a global audience we have we do have it here in boston about 40 40 students but that was designed to be at, and trained with a sort of high quality education for clinicians, for those who wanted to become scientists, or for those who wanted to become better clinicians. And then we cover all the aspects of clinical research there, clinical trial methodology, experimental trials, and then we also cover observational trials, statistics. They learn about even using statistics, state that we use one of the statistical softwares. They write papers, they publish. We, because of that, eight years ago, we, we created a, a journal, a peer-reviewed journal that was the same name, PPCR journal. Uh, so, and and truly to give them the opportunities, a, a passionate because can we can we try to you know at least at least to decrease this inequality, this important inequality, you know, uh, between scientists and training in 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 US Europe. Uh, someplace in Asia and then uh, compared to South America, Africa, and so on. So, and so far, again, we are in this uh, 16th year of the program uh, and and just growing. So we now have about 500 people per year. And but we still can keep a high quality education, even with this large number. It's intensive. There is a number of chairs. We have almost 200 uh, GAs teaching assistants in the program. So it is. Um, is a large, a large, a large uh, uh, sort of a, uh, a program, and and I've seen I've seen the results. So that's that's why I'm I'm very excited with this with this and seeing as well. I, it's great to start seeing those those who took the program and then some some of course are coming to US and having good careers and uh, it is it is great to see the, those those results. What an incredible initiative! You should be so proud. I just want to. Wrap up uh, just because we're running out of time here, but give us your crystal ball view as someone that's a leader in neuromodulation. What do you think is going to be the number one breakthrough that we're going to see in the next five or 10 years? Sure. So, um, what I think my the, the, the breakthrough, and I think that that's very much needed, is to have very portable devices so that is going to change the field the field hasn't hasn't let's say you know hasn't had this breakthrough because of the lack of portability and and i was discussing I remember discussing 15 years ago with 
you know, some companies, uh, uh, they're asking for advice. And I said, look, you know, there's everything for for the field to go and 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 improve the uh, and enhance the, uh, the the use as well. But portability is a problem. So and but then now I see uh, sort of a, a, a more stronger movement according to that. So if we can, for instance, you know, so having in a in in a, in a phone, in a same thing on the uh, you know a, a, a small a small device you can put in a ear, for instance, vagal nerve stimulation, and uh, and you can push a button, and then you are being stimulated, and according to a measuring stimulating. Then, then, then you start having something that's as easy as taking a pill, and and patients will start using more. So that would be the, the 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 breakthrough that is much needed. So then, stimulation can be part. Neuromodulation can be part of the tools of any clinician. So hopefully, that'll be that'll be what will change the field. Believe unbelievable interview. You should be incredibly proud of not only that training program which is allowing scientists across the globe to benefit from what you're doing, but just your research initiatives to understand the brain. And, and like I said, you know, the brain doesn't have the healing capacity like other organs. And so your guys' advancements really have the ability to change the way we treat stroke and other chronic diseases like chronic pain, Parkinson's. So very much look forward to seeing what the future holds. And again, congrats on all of your accomplishments. Very impressive. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So uh, anytime and anything, anyone who wants to connect, I'm always very happy to, to follow up. Thank you very much. All right, Philippe. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care.